This is Reverend Kirk Lawton, minister at Ocean Lakes Family Campground, and this is our podcast. Our prayer is that this message may enrich your life as you find God especially meaningful to you. Thank you for worshiping with us. Some time ago, I stood in a hospital corridor with two heartbroken parents. Their only son lay in a nearby room, not expected to live through the night. Only a few days before, this boy had been healthy, apparently just as much as any other young child, but now he depended on a mechanical breathing device for the little bit of life which he held on to. As I talked with the father and the mother, they tried to be brave and courageous, but through swollen eyes, that father said, in a time like this, preacher, it's hard to have faith. Both parents were Christians, but he was simply reflecting a question which had been asked many years ago, a question which our master Jesus asked during his agony on the cross. My God, my God, why? Some years ago, I stood at the bedside of a young mother who had only recently learned that she was expecting another child. After only a few weeks following conception, complications had set in, and there was a real possibility of termination of that little life within her. In the shock of sadness upon hearing that news, this mother who had wonderful thoughts of having another child. The question that welled up in her heart was a simple yet profound question, why? I stood at the bedside of another young man in the hospital and heard him as he poured out his feelings of discouragement over a prolonged sickness. He was from a Christian family apparently, but he had been taught that it was a sin ever to ask the question why. And so he had bottled up within his heart that question when it surfaced, and now it was causing him some real anxiety. How desperately he wanted to cry out, even as Jesus did on the cross, and ask that honest question, my God, my God, why? Now, I would not be so bold this morning as to think that I have the complete answer to these questions which I've just raised. But I do think we can come up with some approaches to these questions which may be of help. First, let me ask another question. How do we explain all the goodness in the world? We've all heard the question asked, why is there so much evil in the world? But let's turn this around and ask, why is there so much goodness in the world? Goodness and evil are two opposing mysteries in this world. We know that God is good, and if we were to challenge God in times of trouble, then we'd have an even greater problem on our hands, that of the origin of good. We cannot solve the problem of evil by saying that there is no God, or that He's not working to help us. Let's suppose that God were to allow us to try our hand at improving the world that He's made. What would you do? Would you remove from the world all the evil? Would you leave no possibility for suffering? Then you'd have to rule out also the ability of people to choose their own path, or else you would not be a just judge. 
No, the absence of conflict does not bring real happiness. Happiness does not come through living life on a soft cushion or by having a silver spoon in your mouth when you're born. There's a story about a man who died and awakened in a world of luxurious surroundings. An attendant nearby told him that all he had to do was to ask for anything he wanted and it would be his. Let him name a book and it was there. Let him recall a painting and it was placed before him. So after a year or two of this luxury, the man became hopelessly bored. I am sick and tired of this everlasting ease, he said to his attendant. I wish now for something that I cannot have without working for it. But he was told that this world he was living in would be impossible, not where he's living right now. So upon hearing this news, the man completely lost his temper. And he blurted out, in that case, I do not care to stay here. I would prefer to go to hell. The attendant replied, and just where do you think you are, sir? Maybe this is not the best world that you can imagine. But I doubt that any of us can improve on the way God has arranged things. Suffering comes to us all. And our task is to accept it even when we cannot understand or explain the reason for it. But something more needs to be said about this. And that is that trouble can be put to good use. God does not expect us simply to throw up our hands in resignation always when trouble comes. He very often has a lesson to teach us in the midst of trouble. Jesus had a way of taking trouble and turning it inside out. He had a way of making suffering his servant rather than his master. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus was made perfect through sufferings. That's Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10. Dr. John Redhead says, A thorn in the flesh can plow the hard surface of a cold heart and make it good ground for the growth of a plant called sympathy. One day, Dr. E. Stanley Jones was in the Himalaya Mountains when a storm struck. He was afraid that the eagle which he was watching would be dashed to pieces against a rock. But as he watched, the eagle set his wings so that the harder the wind blew against him, the higher he rose by it. Yes, your trouble can be put to good use. You can make the best of it by letting it make the best of you. The problem of facing suffering and trouble in the Christian life is not solved completely, either by accepting it or by trying to put it to good use, however. Some of life's evils should be abolished. Every bit of the suffering in this world is not something that God has kindly placed down in our laps. There is some suffering that is not God's intentional will at all. It has no rightful place in this world. When Abe Lincoln was a young man, he went by boat from Illinois down, to, down the Mississippi to New Orleans. One day he saw a young man sold as a slave on an auction block. Right then and there, Lincoln made a promise to himself that had far-reaching results. Abe Lincoln said, 
if I ever get a chance to hit that thing, he was talking about for slavery, I'm going to hit it hard. The Christian solution to the problem of slavery was not in explaining it away, but rather in abolishing it altogether, that evil. Let me ask you, what, what are you doing to abolish the evil that you see about you now? Are you doing anything? Oh, to be sure, I know you're, you're not going to wake up some morning, stretch, and say, okay, today I think I'll go out and abolish some evil. No, but, but let's be practical. Are there any scars that you still see in your heart, your home, maybe in somebody you love because of a failure to express genuine love when it was needed? Then what are you doing now to help heal those wounds or to help to erase those scars by your own positive expression of love? <clears throat> Has a broken marriage brought to you a disappointment? or to someone dear to you. You can't go back and undo all the hurt that may have been experienced, but is there anything you can do to help some other young person to avoid the pitfall that was so hurtful to you? Has the abuse of alcohol brought about an intolerable situation in your home or in the home of your loved one? What is your attitude toward this evil? Is it one of mild acceptance, good-natured agreement? Or do you take a courageous stand for a conviction that you have about this, even in the face of contrary public opinion, even when it means you're taking an opposite view from those who may mean a whole lot to you and whose acceptance you crave? And it may not be alcohol, it may be some other drug or some other kind of addiction. God does not intend that we always fold our hands in blind acceptance of all of, the, all of the world's evils. There are some situations in which the Christian is called, to, uh, called upon to stand up and to be counted, to continue to wage war against evil with all the tenacity of an angry bulldog. An unknown author has said, I want to let go, <clears throat> but I won't let go. There are battles to fight by day and by night for God and the right, and I'll never let go. I want to let go, but I won't let go. I'm sick, it is true, worried and blue, and worn through and through, but I won't let go. I want to let go, but I won't let go. I will never yield. What? Lie down in the field and surrender my shield? No, I'll never let go. I want to let go, but I won't let go. May this be my song mid legions of wrong. Oh God, keep me strong that I may never let go. <clears throat> Several Sundays ago, I mentioned um, a courageous lady whose name was Corey Ten Boom. In her book, The Hiding Place, she tells about her experience of traveling by train with her father to Amsterdam to purchase watches and parts for the repair shop he, was, he had back home. That was his profession. Although the train trip took only a half hour, Corey Ten Boom said she treasured those moments with her father. Here's how she described it. 
Oftentimes I would use the trip home to bring up things that were troubling me since anything I asked at home was promptly answered by one of the aunts. Once, oh, I may have been 10 or 11, I asked Father about a poem we had read at school the winter before. One line in that poem had described a young man whose face was not shadowed by sex sin. I had been far too shy to ask the teacher what it meant, and Mama had blushed scarlet when I consulted her. In those days, just after the turn of the century, sex was never discussed, not even at home. And so that line had stuck in my head. Sex, I was pretty sure, meant whether you were a boy or a girl, and sin made Aunt Jan's very angry. But what the two of those words together meant, I just could not imagine. And so, seated next to Father in the train compartment, I suddenly asked, Father, what is sex sin? He turned to look at me, as he always did when answering a question. But to my surprise, Father said nothing. At last, he stood up and lifted his traveling case from the rack over our heads, and he set it on the floor. Will you carry this off the train, Corey? He said. I stood up and tugged at it. It was crammed with the watches and spare parts he had purchased that morning. It's too heavy, Father, I said. Yes, he answered. And it would be a pretty poor father who would ask his little girl to carry such a load as that. It's the same way, Corey, with knowledge. Some knowledge is too heavy for little children. When you're a bit older and stronger, you can bear it. But for now, you must trust me to carry it for you. And I was satisfied, said Corey, more than satisfied, wonderfully at peace. There were answers to this and all my hard questions, but for now, I was content to leave them in my father's keeping. Corrie Ten Boom closes this chapter in her book by retelling one other experience in her life, which happened when she was still a very young girl. I was following Mama and Nolly up a dark, strange flight of stairs where cobwebs clutched at our hair and mice scuttled away ahead of us. The building was less than a block from our home, probably a century newer, but there was no Aunt Anna to wax and to scrub here. We were going to see one of the many poor families in the neighborhood whom Mama had adopted. The night before, a little baby had died, and with a basket of her own fresh bread, Mama was making the prescribed call on the family. She toiled painfully up the railless stairs, often stopping for breath. And at the top, a door opened into a single room that was obviously the room for cooking, eating, and sleeping, all at one place. There were already many visitors there in that room, most of them standing because of lack of chairs. Mama went at once to the young mother. 
but I stood frozen on the threshold, just to the right of the door where we entered. So still in that homemade crib was the dead baby. It was strange that a society which hid the facts of sex from children made no effort to shield them from death. I stood in the doorway staring at that tiny, unmoving form with my heart thudding strangely against my ribs. Nolly, my sister, always braver than I, stretched out her hand and touched the baby's ivory white cheek. I longed to do that too, but I hung back afraid. For a while, curiosity and terror struggled in me, but at last I could put one finger on the small curled hand of that baby. It was cold, cold as we walked back to our house, cold as I washed for supper, cold even in the snug gas-lit dining room of our home. Between me and each familiar face around the table crept those small icy fingers. For all that Aunt Jans had talked about, death had been only a word. Now I knew that it could really happen. If it happened to that little baby, then it could happen to Mama, to Father, to my sister Betsy. Still shivering with that cold, I followed Nolly up to our room, and I crept into bed beside her. At last, we heard Father's footsteps winding up the stairs. It was the best moment in every day when he came up to tuck us in. We never fell asleep until he had arranged the blankets in his special way and laid his hand for a moment on each of our heads. Then we tried not to move even a toe. But that night, as Father stepped through the door, I burst into tears. I need you, I sobbed. You can't die, Father, you can't. Beside me on the bed, my sister Nolly sat up. Father, we went to see Mrs. Hoog, she explained. Cora didn't eat her supper tonight or anything. Father sat down on the edge of that narrow bed. Cory, he began gently. When you and I go to Amsterdam to buy per pieces, uh, supplies for watches, when do I give you your ticket for the train? I sniffed a few times considering this. Why, Father, just before we get on the train, you give it to me. Exactly. Our wise Father in heaven knows also when we're going to need things, Corey. Don't run out ahead of him. When the time comes that some of us will have to die, you will look into your heart and you will find the strength that you need just in time. No, God will not let us look beyond the bend of the road, but he will assure us that whatever lies beyond the bend, we will not have to walk alone. In spite of all that you and I can do, we must finally admit that we're human beings. Now, 
we see through a glass darkly. We can never find refuge and comfort from all the world's sufferings until we know the God of all comfort. David put it this way, For thou hast been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. I will trust in the cover of thy wings. That's the 61st Psalm, verses 3 and 4. So, have you made God your strong tower? Only when he has become this for you can you find strength to meet the challenges of every day. Only when you've decided to let Jesus Christ be your rock, your shelter, your fortress, can you have a faith that is ready to face trouble. Oh God, we all have those troubles that come our way in different ways. We don't know what's beyond the bend of the road. We don't know what trouble may be facing us today or tomorrow. But how thankful we are, oh God, that we don't have to face troubles alone. We do have those questions in our heart, just like Jesus. Why, Lord, why? Help us to know that we can depend on you to give us the assurance that we need just when we need it most. Not all of ahead of, ahead of time, but just at the time of our greatest need. Thank you, Father, for Jesus who makes life meaningful as we submit ourselves to him. In his name we pray. Amen.